Chapter Thirteen, Section Three of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Thirteen, Section Three: Attempts at Individual Emancipation. Americans believe, of course, that they enjoy perfect freedom of opinion, and so they do in form there is no legal encouragement of any one set of opinions there is no legal discouragement of another set of opinions they have denied intellectual freedom to themselves by methods very much more insidious than those employed by a despotic government a national tradition has been established which prevents individuals from desiring freedom and if they should desire and obtain it they are prevented from using it the freedom of american speech and thought has not been essentially different from the freedom of speech which a group of prisoners might enjoy during their term of imprisonment. The prisoners could, of course, think and talk much as they pleased, but there was nobody but themselves to hear. And in the absence both of an adequate material, discipline, and audience, both the words and thoughts were without avail. The truth is, of course, that intellectual individuality and independence were sacrificed for the benefit of social homogeneity and the quickest possible development of american economic opportunities and in this way a vital relation has been established for americans between the assertion of intellectual independence or moral individuality and the adoption of a nationalized economic and political system during the middle period american individual intelligence did indeed struggle gallantly to attain freedom the intellectual ferment at the time was more active and more general than it is to-day during the three decades before the war a remarkable outbreak of heresy occurred all over the east and middle west every convention of american life was questioned except those unconscious conventions of feeling and thought which pervaded the intellectual and moral atmosphere the abolitionist agitation was the one practical political result of this ferment but many of these freethinkers wished to emancipate the whites as well as the blacks they fearlessly challenged substantially all the established institutions of society the institutions of marriage and the state fared frequently as ill as did property and the church radical however as they were in thought they were by no means revolutionary in action the several brands of heresy differed too completely one from another to be melted into a single political agitation and program the need for action spent itself into the formation of socialistic communities for the most varied kind the great majority of which were soon either disbanded or transformed but whatever its limitations the ferment was symptomatic of a genuine revolt of the american spirit against the oppressive servitude of the individual intelligence to the social will demanded by the popular democratic system and tradition the revolt however with all the sincere enthusiasm it inspired was condemned to sterility it accomplished nothing and could accomplish nothing for society because it sought by individual or unofficial associated action results which demanded official collective action and it accomplished little even for the individual because it was not the outcome of any fruitful individual discipline the emancipated idea was usually defined by seeking the opposite of the conventional idea individuality was considered to be a matter of being somehow and anyhow different from other people 
there was no authentic intellectual discipline behind the agitation. The pioneer Democrat with all his limitations embodied the only living national body of opinion, and he remained untainted by this outburst of heresy. He deprived it of all vitality by depriving its separate explosions, abolitionism excepted, of all serious attention. He crushed it far more effectually by indifference than he would have by persecution. When the shock of the Civil War aroused Americans to a realization of the unpleasant political realities, sometimes associated with the neglect of a noble national theory, the ferment subsided without leaving behind so much as a loaf of good white bread. For practical political purposes it exhausted itself, as I have said, in abolitionism, and in that movement both its strength and weaknesses are writ plain. Its revolt on behalf of emancipation was courageous and sincere. The patriotism which inspired it recognized the need of justifying its Protestantism by a better conception of democracy. But the heresy was as incoherent and as credulous as the antithetic orthodoxy. It sought to accomplish an intellectual revolution without organizing either an army or an armament, just as the pioneer Democrat expected to convert untutored enthusiasm into acceptable technical work and a popular political and economic atomism into a substantially socialized community. In its meaning and effect, consequently, the revolt was merely negative and anti-national. It served a constructive democratic purpose, only by the expensive and dubious means of instigating a civil war. If any of the other heresies of the period, as well as abolitionism, had developed into an effective popular agitation, they could have obtained a similar success only by means of incurring a similar danger. The intellectual ideals of the movement were not educational, and its Declaration of Intellectual Independence issued in as sterile a program for the Republic of American thought, as did the Declaration of Political Independence for the American National Democracy. In truth, all these mid-century American heretics were not heretics at all, in relation to really stupefying and perverting American tradition. They were sturdily rebellious against all manner of respectable methods, ideas, and institutions, but none of them dreamed of protesting against the real enemy of American intellectual independence. They never dreamed of associating the moral and intellectual emancipation of the individual with the conscious fulfillment of the American national purpose and with the patient and open-eyed individual and social discipline thereby demanded. They all shared the illusion of the pioneers, that somehow a special providential design was effective on behalf of the American people, which permitted them as individuals and as a society to achieve their purposes by virtue of good intentions, exuberant enthusiasm, and enlightened selfishness. The new world and the new American idea had released them from the bonds in which less fortunate Europeans were entangled. Those bonds were not to be considered as the terms under which excellent individual and social purposes were necessarily to be achieved. They were bad habits, which the dead past had imposed upon the inhabitants of the old world, and from which Americans could be emancipated by virtue of their abundant faith in human nature and the boundless natural opportunities of the new continent. Thus the American national ideal of the middle period was essentially geographical. The popular thinkers of that day were hypnotized by the reiterated suggestion of a new American world. 
their fellow countrymen had obtained and were apparently making good use of a wholly unprecedented amount of political and economic freedom and they jumped to the conclusion that the different disciplinary methods which limited both individual and social action in europe were unnecessary just as the jacksonian democracy had finally vindicated american political independence by doing away with the remnants of our earlier political colonialism so american moral and intellectual independence demanded a similar vindication this geographical protestantism was in a measure provoked if not justified by the habit of colonial dependence upon europe in matters of opinion which so many well-educated americans of that period continued to cherish but it was based upon the illusion that the economic and social conditions of the middle period which favored temporarily a mixture of faith and irresponsibility freedom and formlessness would persist and could be translated into terms of individual intellectual and moral discipline in truth it was of course a great mistake to conceive americanism as intellectually and morally a species of newer worldliness a national intellectual ideal did not divide us from europe any more than did a national political ideal in both cases national independence had no meaning except in a system of international intellectual moral and political relations american national independence was to be won not by means of a perverse opposition to european intellectual and moral influence but by a positive and thoroughgoing devotion to our own national democratic ideal the national intellectual ideal could afford to be as indifferent to the sources of american intellectual life as the american political ideal was to the sources of american citizenship the important thing was and is not where our citizens or our special disciplinary ideals come from but what use we make of them just as economic and political americanism has been broad enough and vital enough to make a place in the american social economy for the hordes of european immigrants with their many diverse national characteristics so the intellectual basis of americanism must be broad enough to include and vigorous enough to assimilate the special ideals and means of discipline necessary to every kind of intellectual or moral excellence the technical ideals and standards which the typical american of the middle period instinctively undervalued are neither american nor european they are merely the special forms whereby the several kinds of intellectual eminence are to be obtained they belong to the nature of the craft those forms and standards were never sufficiently naturalized in america during the colonial period because the economic and social conditions of the time did not justify such naturalization the appropriate occasion for the transfer was postponed until after american political independence had been secured and when occasion did not arise the naturalness of the transfer was perverted and obscured by political preconceptions the foregoing considerations throw a new light upon the mistake made by the american heretics of the middle period in so far as their assertion of american intellectual independence was negative it should not have been a protest against feudalism social classification social and individual discipline approved technical methods or any of those social forms and intellectual standards which so many americans vaguely believed to be exclusively european it should have been a protest against a sterile and demoralizing americanism the americanism of national irresponsibility and indiscriminate individualism the bondage from which americans need and still need emancipation is not from europe 
but from the evasions, the incoherence, the impatience, and the easy-going conformity of their own intellectual and moral traditions. We do not have to cross the Atlantic in order to hunt for the enemies of American national independence and fulfillment. They sit at our political fireside and toast their feet on its coals. They poison American patriotic feeling until it becomes, not a leaven, but a kind of national gelatin. They enshrine this American democratic ideal in a temple of canting words, which serves merely as a cover for a religion of personal profit. American moral and intellectual emancipation can be achieved only by a victory over the ideas, the conditions, and the standards which make Americanism tantamount to collective irresponsibility, and to the moral and intellectual subordination of the individual to a commonplace popular average. The heretics of the middle period were not cowardly, but they were intellectually irresponsible, undisciplined, and inexperienced. Sharing as they did, most of the deeper illusions of their time, they did not vindicate their own individual intellectual independence, and they contributed little or nothing to American national intellectual independence. With the exception of a few of the men of letters who had inherited a formative local tradition, their own personal careers were examples not of gradual individual fulfillment, but at best of repetition and at worst of degeneracy. Like the most brilliant contemporary Whig politicians, such as Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, their intellectual individuality was gradually cheapened by the manner in which it was expressed, and it is this fact which makes the case of Lincoln, both as a politician and a thinker, so unique and so extraordinary. The one public man of this period who did impose upon himself a patient and a severe intellectual and moral discipline, who really did seek the excellent use of his own proper tools, is the man who preeminently attained national intellectual and moral stature. The difference in social value between Lincoln and, say, William Lloyd Garrison, can be measured by the difference in moral and intellectual discipline to which each of these men submitted. Lincoln sedulously turned to account every intellectual and moral opportunity which his life afforded. Garrison's impatient temper and unbalanced mind made him the enthusiastic advocate of a few distorted and limited ideas. The consequence was that Garrison, although apparently an arch-heretic, was in reality the victim of the sterile American convention which makes willful enthusiasm, energy, and good intentions a sufficient substitute for necessary individual and collective training. Lincoln, on the other hand, was in his whole moral and intellectual makeup a living protest against the aggressive and merely practical Americanism of his day, while at the same time in the greatness of his love and understanding he never allowed his distinction to divide him from his fellow countrymen. His was the unconscious and constructive heresy which looked in the direction of national intellectual independence and national moral union and good faith. End of chapter 13, section 3